Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. That would be in the New Testament. First book. We'll be looking at Matthew 5, uh, verses 21 to 26 this morning. Matthew 5, 21 to 26. Jesus speaking. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother had something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. You know, as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, I've several times jokingly referred to it as Jesus' TED Talk. I'm being facetious, of course. This is nothing like a TED Talk. TED Talks are generally designed to make you feel good. Uh, Whereas this sermon is likely to leave us all feeling a little bit, shall we say, inadequate. Uh, Jesus is not in the business of pep rallies to build your self-esteem, apparently. I still like TED Talks, you know. I I don't know if you've ever watched one, but they're pretty interesting, I think. Uh, I know a composer from Philly who uh, did one a few years ago. It was great. Uh, But they basically consist of an individual who's an expert in some given subject, and they go out there and they give a speech about said subject, and they have so much passion, and they know the subject inside and out, and because they know it so well, and they find it so interesting, their enthusiasm kind of becomes infectious. It becomes interesting to you as well. You can't help it. And they can speak without notes, uh, because they live and breathe what they're talking about. Uh, It's like when I'm teaching civics at Excelsior. My best classes don't require notes. Isn't that right, Grace? Um, On the other hand, my sermons require thorough notes because I'm not really an expert in theology, let's be honest. I need guardrails in the worst kind of way. You know, Chip Ingram, when, you know, we watch his videos in Sunday school, he does everything without notes, but I'm not like him, you know? So, you know, today, as Jesus begins sort of the meat of the sermon, we've gotten over all the introductory paragraphs at this point. I I looked at the heading in my Bible, my ESV, and it just simply says, anger. And I thought... I don't even need to write this sermon. I can do this without notes because (laughs) I am an expert at anger. Uh, Maybe some of you think you know anger, but I I feel like I'm I'm really good at it. Uh, And this week has provided ample illustrations of it too. I feel like I could teach a master class on anger. And I've done it all over the years. I've held grudges. I I have punched steering wheels. I've broken inanimate objects. I have thrown things. I yell. I do that a lot. I even once put a hammer through the wall of our kitchen in our last house. The house had it coming, though. (laughs) 
So you, you could say I, I'm like the poster child, the, the, the classic picture. I could teach this with my eyes closed because I am an angry young man, or at least two of those three things. <laughs> but uh, then I read the fine print, you know, and, and as it turns out, Jesus is not actually advocating anger here. You know, I could teach a class on how to get angry, but that's not very helpful. Uh, it's kind of like Brian Regan says when he goes to the doctor for his heartburn, and the doctor hands him a brochure explaining the foods that cause heartburn, and he's like, I already know this, you know. <laughs> that's me. I'm an expert in how to do this wrong. Uh, I'm not typically violent, but I am an angry man, and maybe you can relate. Uh, but Jesus is here, like a good doctor, to explain why this is bad and why the one thing I'm good at is actually terrible and need to stop, you know? It's like telling an athlete he can't run anymore. But I, I guess this shouldn't be surprising. How often does anger produce good results in your experience? If you've ever watched, there's a, a comic movie called Mystery Men. came out a little over 20 years ago. It's about these misfit superheroes. And one of the main characters is played by Ben Stiller. And his superhero name is Mr. Furious. <laughs> his superpower is extreme rage. Uh, of course, the movie finds a way to make this a surprisingly helpful trait in conquering the bad guy at the very end. But there's a reason why this is a comedy, you know? I mean, one of the superheroes is played by Pee Wee Herman, to give you an idea, you know. So this is not endorsing anger. Uh, rather, Jesus is actually he's going out of his way to expand the definition of the sixth commandment to include anger. He's taking the commandment on murder and increasing the application, extending its jurisdiction, if you like. Now, to some extent, that's exactly the kind of thing the Pharisees often did. The teachers of the law would often add additional qualifiers to the commandments. And I think that's why Jesus includes an extra biblical line. What he says in verse 21, he says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, the original commandment stopped short at just, You shall not murder, right? Uh, Jesus adds that other part about being liable to judgment because that's how the teachers of the law would word this, the, the scribes and Pharisees that he was mentioning last week, the sort of paragons of virtue, right? It was the teachers of the law who would add specific threats on, on here if they, if they could. Now, that was the Pharisaical way of building safeguards around the law. Uh, it's a typical conservative rabbinical teaching at this time. Uh, so let's just say if... if if you were forbidden to ride bikes in the city, the pharisaical thing to, to do would be to ban bikes entirely throughout the entire county, just to make sure, right? Uh, if you don't want kids in your garden, it's the same kind of principle. You put a fence around the entire property to keep them out of just the garden, right? You, you're doing these things for good measure. And likewise, I, they would build a fence around the law, safety rails, as it were. And, and this is, I mean, for instance, this is why kosher laws, even today, don't allow you to blend meat and dairy, Right? Well, the Old Testament doesn't say that specifically. It says not to cook a calf in its mother's milk. But just in case, because you don't know where the milk might have come from, they ban mixing the ingredients completely. So you see what I mean. Uh, so Jesus starts this lesson, and, and several of the ones that follow, not, not just by quoting the Old Testament law, he also kind of grants the, the Pharisaical additional qualifiers. So he's saying, yes, they will be liable to judgment. He doesn't try to tear that down. He actually is going to explain why even this, even a, even a more strict reading of the law, is not strict enough. So he adds this qualifier in, in verse 22. He says, But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, 
will be liable to the hell of fire. It should probably worry us at this point that Jesus doesn't even mention murder on that list. Because I I don't know about you, but of all the Ten Commandments, I kind of tend to figure that this is the one that I have down, right? In the whole grand scheme of comparative ethics, when we want to feel better about ourselves, there is no easier comfort in the world than for most of us to say, well, at least I never killed anyone. Of course, there are certainly actual killers in this world, but since you're all here, I'm assuming none of you are wanted for murder. And I'm willing to bet that most of us have never even begun to actually plan a murder. Uh, Because you see, conspiracy to commit murder is also a pretty serious crime. And that's why in Colombo, when the victim survives the first attempt, the killer always has to go finish the guy off because you're already in too deep. You're already looking at significant jail time, right? So you've got to complete the job. It also makes the show more interesting. But, you know, maybe you're like me, figuring, you know, the Sixth Commandment is about the only one I'm innocent of. I, I've never been responsible for the death of anyone that I know of. I have never planned a murder in mind, or at least I've not recorded it, so you can't say anything. Uh, It's the only thing I feel like I can hang my hat on. And I think it's funny, even unbelievers think this way too, because it's very common if you're speaking to unbelievers about the gospel. uh, As soon as you get to the part where you have to explain that they are sinners, uh, and that we're all sinners, uh, a lot of people will deny it, and they'll say, I'm a good person. And again, the easiest proof is for them to say, well, I'm not a killer or anything like that. Killers are the worst of society, and I'm certainly not in that category. All right, well, if that's all there is to it, this wouldn't be so bad, but Jesus is not ready to let any of us off the hook. Jesus is presenting murder as a spectrum. It doesn't start with the arsenic in the wine glass. It begins as a thought crime. Anger is the earliest stage of murder. So murder is always premeditated in the sense that the source is within you. Murder is only anger in action to the fullest extent. So Jesus says that if you are even angry at your brother, you are liable to judgment. Now, it's fairly obvious that he means the judgment of God here. Uh, There is no human institution that can read your mind, other than the KGB maybe, Gordon Lightfoot sings the song, If You Could Read My Mind, Love, What a Tale My Thoughts Would Tell. If you have secret police, songs like that are unnecessary. They can read your mind. It's okay. (laughs) But, you know, we consider it God's mercy. We we live in a country where thought crime is not actually punishable by death or prison, other than maybe on Twitter. But God, who knows the heart, can read your anger. He can see the seed of murder, even before it gets very far. That's kind of freaky, because it means that even when you keep your temper, God knows when you're boiling inside. It doesn't escape his notice. You can be as placid as Bob Ross or Mr. Rogers on the outside, but God knows what's really going on. Now, we sometimes will say of someone that he has a temper, right? And of course, what we really mean is that they often lose their temper. Uh, Temper is a word we borrow from metallurgy. Uh, Tempered steel is is hardened steel, steel that will not bend or break very easily. The way you temper steel is you cool it off quickly. 
And that's why you see blacksmiths in the movies, right? They're dipping the swords into water or oil and you hear the hiss. But that quick cooling is what binds the steel together. That's called tempering. And if a sword loses its temper, it becomes more brittle and bendable. That's what happens when you heat up a sword and either keep it very hot or you let it cool down too slowly. That's what weakens it and makes it malleable. Now, it's interesting. I say it's interesting, but uh, it's more scary. Uh, Because we often think of anger as a display of strength, don't we? If I yell at my kids, or I drive more aggressively, or I otherwise put my anger on display, I'm convinced in that moment that I am trying to be strong. I raise my voice on the phone talking to some useless sales rep, right? And I'm doing that because I'm trying to intimidate them. I'm trying to look tough and hardened, but in reality, I'm losing my temper. And when I lose my temper, I become malleable. I'm letting my situation shape me and not the other way around. That, for instance, is why no one is thinking of Will Smith as tough right now. Most of you probably didn't watch the Oscars other than Maurice, but I bet you've all seen <laughs> I bet you've all seen the memes by now, right? Which is good because they're hilarious. Uh, Will Smith nearly decked Chris Rock right in the middle of the show on live TV, and he wanted to look tough, but instead he looked unstable because he bent under pressure. And that's what happens when you lose your temper. But what Jesus is saying is that you don't actually have to go up and slap Chris Rock. God knows when you just wanted to. And that's a scary thing for most of us because long before murder comes anger. And then it escalates from there. Jesus says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. So sinful words that flow from anger are the next obvious step. And it's possible that ecclesiastical justice might follow. You may have to face the council. Even today, you might get in trouble in church for angry speech. That could happen. Social media doesn't mind, but churches tend to frown on it. But the specific example Jesus uses in this original text is is, is the word raka, which is an Aramaic word meaning basically empty. In other words, to call someone empty-headed, adult, a ditz, a feather-brained imbecile, a vacuous nincompoop. All of these fun, childish insults, if they reflect real, unjustified anger, they are subject to judgment. And then Jesus ups the ante one more time. He says, if you call your brother a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Well, that stepped up quickly, didn't it? The word for fool here is the Greek more. It's where we get the word moron. According to John Stott, some scholars say that more, more there, uh, might be a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means rebel or outcast or apostate. Uh, If that's the case, then there's a slight difference in the insults here. Uh, Both of the sins are committed verbally, but in essence, calling someone raka is calling them stupid, whereas calling them more implies that they are wicked, that they're basically unbelievers. So one insults their intelligence, the other insults their moral character. Now, once again, we typically think that words are pretty minor offenses. We we laugh at all of the snowflakes in the world. We can't handle any criticism, right? 
this whole culture of participation trophies. What's wrong with people? And look, it drives me crazy too. I'm a millennial, uh, but we are kind of a silly generation in some ways. But according to Jesus, murder being a spectrum, malicious words are a part of that spectrum. And that means they are dangerous. Not because they always lead to murder, but because God will judge those words. So while your insults may be protected by the First Amendment, Jesus is saying that God's law is not so permissive. There's a reason why we even call it character assassination. Because you're trying to make somebody kind of wish that they were dead and there's no jail time involved. Sweet deal, but Jesus does care about these things. And the danger, he says, is not a slap on the wrist or soap in your mouth. It's hellfire. The word Jesus uses here for hellfire is Gehenna which is one of his favorite images for hell. It's actually a reference to a trash dump outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Back in those days, they didn't have uh, very sophisticated waste management, so all refuse got tossed into one valley south of the city. And there was no plumbing back then, so chamber pots and all we're talking about, right? And they tossed it all out there into the valley, and they burned it. Not in an enclosed incinerator, but out in the open. If you can just envision that delightful aroma. Think of the last men's fire night when we accidentally burned the asphalt, right? (laughs) It's like that, only worse. And since trash keeps coming, the fire keeps burning. It's It's an eternal reeking flame. So Gehenna is literally a dumpster fire. And moreover, It had also historically been the site of human sacrifices during the reign of some of the wicked kings of Judah. And and Jeremiah had called this valley the Valley of Slaughter. So, nice place, right? And that is Jesus' chosen picture of hell. A pit full of perpetually flaming garbage. And that is what you're in danger of when you're angry. Murder. And the threat of judgment starts with anger. Anger leads to insulting people's intelligence, which leads to insulting their character. Murder begins with uncontrolled anger and dehumanizing language. It doesn't start with hate, properly speaking. It starts with irritation. And that's what's so scary about it. It's a subtle thing. Now, I will say that by the same token, we can also be angry at ourselves in an unhealthy way. I happen to experience that a lot. Uh, Some of my worst displays of anger have been when I'm mad at myself. Uh, I am quicker to curse myself than anybody else. But if Jesus is right, and I think he must be right, uh, then when I am cursing myself and I lose my temper with myself, I am essentially committing something on the scale of something approaching a form of suicide. This past week... Well, uh, on Tuesday, I, I woke up in a panic because I overslept the alarm and I had an important doctor's appointment, so I raced out to the car and I, you know, recklessly, and I drove about a mile, realized I'd forgotten my mask, raced back, I hurt myself running into the locked door, <laughs> I raced back out, went over to the office, realized it was the wrong office, Spent half of this ride on the phone trying to get through to the desk and explain why I'm late. And I finally got to the right place 30 minutes late. 
only to have God graciously, uh, it turns out that my appointment was for in half an hour later than I thought it was supposed to be. She said, you're on time. <laughs> so this was all for nothing. I just wanted to point that out from the start. But as I sped around Allentown, I yelled at myself and cursed myself for being an empty-headed fool. Matt, you dummy. Raka, moron. I was a mess. How many of you have ever been there? People don't use fool as a serious insult anymore, not since Mr. T, but um, I remember my dad once calling himself a fool, and my dad had a way, I don't know, he, he was really mad at himself, and he had a way of making fool sound really bad. <laughs> like, you fool! I can still hear it, you know? And I believe we often sin against ourselves in this way, and I also find that anger at myself is almost always, along with being very volatile, it's also mixed with an anger at God. Because he made me. And I think to myself, then why am I so messed up? Beloved, not all anger is directed outward. Sometimes it aims in, and sometimes it aims up. Now, I need to say, and be careful to say, that anger is not always sinful. In fact, sometimes decency requires it. Paul says in Ephesians 4 to be angry, but do not sin. That would be a nonsensical command if it wasn't possible to be angry without sinning. But if we're honest, I would submit to you that most of our anger is not sinless. Anger is always a product of sin, either my sin or somebody else's, but even if my anger was initially justified, I tend to misuse it, and by the end of the day, I'm sinning anyway. If you can relate to any of this, then congratulations, killer. You've joined the ranks of anybody on death row, because unholy anger is the root of all murder. Now, anger is not inherently sinful, but like grief, anger was unknown because it was unnecessary before the fall. Anger is a symptom that something is wrong. Anger is kind of like pain in that way. It's a tool. It's God's way of reminding you that things are not as they should be. So anger has its place, but it is not our calling. And it certainly shouldn't be our identity. But I think sometimes we kind of like that identity. I think we prefer to be angry. Righteous indignation is the best kind of indignation, right? We, we actually act like anger is a, a virtue signal, a sign of our passion for justice, right? I, I thought of Billy Joel's song, The Angry Young Man. The first verse goes like this. He says, there's a place in the world for the angry young man with his working class ties and his radical plans. He refuses to bend. He refuses to crawl. He's always at home with his back to the wall. And he's proud of his scars and the battles he's lost. And he struggles and bleeds as he hangs on the cross. And he likes to be known as the angry young man. Martyrs. I think we all have a streak of this. We're all angry young men. Murderers on a spectrum. We identify as angry. It's our occasional superpower. Our secret weapon. But Jesus says that anger is not meant to be a character trait. Anger is not a calling in life, and it is not a superpower. 
It is not inherently virtuous any more than pain and sadness are. Anger is not an end goal. No one likes an angry man. Whoever describes somebody as being an angry person and means it as a compliment. People who are always angry to the point that it becomes inseparable from their identity. Those kind of people are scary. We avoid those kinds of people. Anger is supposed to be a tool that drives us to action. If something is wrong, we should let our anger drive us to try to fix it. But anger is not a point. It's not a thing in and of itself that we're looking for to hold on to. You should never get comfortable with your anger. Unlike salt, it should be used sparingly. (laughs) I remember once hearing... I think it was Rush Limbaugh and somebody on the radio saying that it requires effort to stay angry and that anger is not a sustainable emotion. I think he was right about that in a sense, but anger can be addictive. We feed our anger because I think we like the adrenaline. And that's why people watch 24-hour news channels. <laughs> it's like those bumper stickers you see. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. I'm sure that's certainly true, but it might be fair to say that many people are paying way too much attention. <clears throat> writer of Proverbs 19.11, he says, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. I think you can apply that to personal relationships, but you can probably apply it even to national politics. But I want to look briefly at how Jesus applies his version of the law because Jesus isn't just trying to overwhelm us. This new law actually has practical elements of what he wants us to do. If anger is dangerous... He wants us to avoid playing with fire, especially dumpster fires. So he gives two examples of ways to apply this principle. They're a similar idea, but with slightly different settings. And the first example is in a a sort of church setting among your brothers. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now that sure sounds like Jesus is telling us that if a fellow Christian has a serious, legitimate beef with us, you should leave church immediately and try to go fix that situation. I'm going to assume that none of you can relate to this because you're all still sitting here. So we'll just skip that one, okay? No, seriously. This this is a tough one uh, because there are probably dozens of people who have beef with me. I don't even know who all has beef with me. And it might be legit and it might not be. So how am I supposed to worship if I can't find someone who's mad at me? I can't always even find out who they are. And the answer is, I don't know. Because even if I did go and try to reconcile myself to everybody, they may not accept it. And if they don't accept my apologies or whatever, do I have to refrain from going to church until everyone is happy with me? Or until I'm happy with everybody else? Like, what am I supposed to do? That seems like a doubtful way to apply it. But Jesus' point is that it's really hard to worship when you're angry or when you know other people are angry with you. Even righteous anger can become an impediment to worship because anger has a tendency to become all-consuming. You can't ignore anger. So Jesus says anger between Christian brothers and sisters can't be allowed to fester. Paul puts it this way. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. He says in Ephesians 4, anger should have a sunset clause. You experience this in in marriage. There's nothing worse than letting yourself go to bed angry. 
I know when we do that that I wake up out of sorts, she wakes up out of sorts, and we act like everything's okay for a little while, but we can both tell something's off, and so we're just awkward and we're uncomfortable with each other until we address the issue. And something that could have been handled before we went to bed becomes like several days. And Jesus is basically saying that's how it feels when you come to church while you're still in a feud with a fellow believer. <clears throat> we act as if he won't notice that we're not acting ourselves if we just go about our business as if nothing happened. If you're angry, or your brother is angry, try to fix it, or at least don't act as if nothing's happening. You, can just, you can't just go through the motions with God. He knows when something's up. But then Jesus says we can also apply this same logic in a secular setting. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Very good, practical advice. Even unbelieving lawyers prefer to settle out of court most of the time, right? But in both of these instances, Jesus is warning us about the anger in others. Go defuse the situation before something bad happens. And I found that a little surprising, except it does make sense because we have a much bigger situation and a much bigger problem that we need to defuse. <clears throat> but he tells us, go make peace with those who are angry at us. His entire point has been that anger is an unwieldy thing. It's dangerous. Put out fires before they start to fester. Whether you started them or not, put them out. So what do we do with this? Once again, this law is hard to bear, and it sure sounds like I'm supposed to avoid anger, and meanwhile, he wants me to try and appease those who are angry with me. I'm not even allowed to get angry at them for being angry. So this is a tough one for me, because for years I've been saying that Jonah 4.4 should be my life verse. The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? <laughs> I'm rarely doing well when I'm angry. My anger is rarely justified. It is seldom well controlled, and when I bottle it up, I'm just raging inside. So how can we do what Jesus is talking about? Or maybe better to ask, how can we control our anger the way Jesus did? Because Jesus got angry sometimes, and yet he never sinned. How did he do it? How did he handle anger? Well, it's probably worth asking what made Jesus angry. <clears throat> And we only have a few clear examples of when that happens, but they all revolve around, there's a common thread, they revolve around his father's honor. Jesus, as the model of perfect righteous anger, he only snaps when his father has been insulted. So when people misinterpret the scriptures, or they make light of the law, or in the case of when he clears out the temple, if you misuse his father's house, that's when he gets a little feisty. Jesus only gets angry to defend his father's honor. He doesn't even get angry when his own honor is insulted. What does he say? He says, turn the other cheek, right? And he goes to the cross in almost complete silence. He endures the abuse like a lamb going to be slaughtered. But when people insult his father, he shows some fire. You read the cleansing of the temple and you'll see the pure rage, but the anger is not on his own behalf or for himself. It's for his father. Our anger is so different. So much of our anger is driven by the sense that our honor has been compromised as if we have honor worth defending. It's funny because the psalmist says that God is slow to anger 
abounding in steadfast love, right? I have to assume that if anyone has a right to be pissed, it's him. And yet, where, where we are quick to get angry, and we work hard sometimes to stay angry, Jesus only rarely flashes anger at all. And he regains his temper pretty quickly. Jesus is never out of control. He shows patience in all things, even up to and including his own death. So Jesus' law of anger is, is hard for us to swallow because I think we have hearts that are full of anger. But as always, Jesus sets a perfect example. And I could just say, look, hey, everybody, stop being so mad. Be like Jesus. Problem solved. After all, he was rarely angry. And, you know, what makes us think we have any reason to be angrier than Jesus? I could just say all that. In fact, I just did. But unfortunately, I know it's not going to fix you because it's never fixed me either. But there is good news. If you remember the spoiler from last week, it gets revealed in this passage again, and you can see it even in his illustration, because Jesus tells you to leave your sacrifice behind if your brother has something against you. He says, go be reconciled first, then come give your sacrifice. But the thing is... The opposite of anger is peace, and in this case it would be peace between brothers and sisters within the church. But more than that, we need peace with God. So when it came to the supreme sacrifice, Jesus couldn't walk away. It had to go in the other order. Reconciliation was only possible if that sacrifice happened first. And Jesus wasn't obligated to be reconciled to us at all. But he went to the cross, and he died, so that we in spite of all our unrighteous anger, could be reconciled to him. I want you to know that our anger is a large part of why he had to die. But I also want you to know that if you are in Christ, our case is now settled. We've come to terms and we've been reconciled. To me, the most amazing thing about this passage, to me, is that Jesus is not an angry young man even though he has every right to be. What's amazing is that when God came in the flesh, anger was not his identifying core personality trait. Jesus was not a slave to his anger, and he never lost control. He kept his temper, and he reconciled many brothers and sisters to himself. And now, he's not angry with us anymore. And that's really good news. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we may not be uh, wanted for murder, in, at least in this commonwealth, but uh, Lord, we confess that we are people who, who struggle with anger. And even the most placid of us, the most peaceful and sweet among us, Lord, you know our hearts and you know what gets us boiling. Lord, we pray that you would keep us not only from violence, but Lord, help us to, to treat anger as the tool that you've designed it to be, Lord, to drive us towards action. Lord, we pray that we would only get angry at the things that Jesus would get angry at, Lord. That we would not concern ourselves with our own honor, but with yours. And Lord, where that is not a pure anger, 
As much of ours is not, we pray that you would purge it from us, Lord. Help us to see this warning, Lord. We pray that you, by your spirit, would drive it out of us, Lord, and bring us peace and calm. Lord, we ask for your mercy this week to do this. We ask these things in Christ's name. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here.